the very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get rolling with today's episode, just want to throw out a reminder, a friendly reminder, that uh, I do have a Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing me a buck a month if you're enjoying the content. And today's guest is a returning champion, Taylor Atkins, my good friend and translator of Francois LaRoyal's Philosophy and Non-Philosophy. This is part three of our deep dive into that text, and we are going to try and pick up where we left off in the intro, cover a couple of definitions, and then perhaps delve into 10 possible matrices of of the one's essence. That's our game plan. Of its descriptions. Of its descriptions. descriptions. Okay. So I'm sorry, I'm being being pedantic. No, it's okay. That's what you're here for, right? You're, yes, paid to, I, you're paid to be pedantic. I got the, <laughs> I got my monocle in my back pocket. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cooper, I'm, I'm always I'm always happy to, to be on. Of course. Uh, you're I'm very grateful to to have this 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 format and this this form with you and and um, it's 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 exciting, man. I think I think I was right. I think the Simon Don. If I'm I'm keeping my my fingers crossed, just to look ahead to future content for you and me. I think that yeah. they might drop around our birthday. Right. And, and for you listeners out there, that'd be amazing. We, we do we do share a birthday. We are. We're, I'm gonna have to mail mine to you. To, uh, so I can, so maybe I can like write you a little. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm gonna have to do that. I'll have to. I'll have to change because I think it. I don't think it shipped yet. So I will change my delivery address to your house uh, <laughs> so that yeah, you can. Sign you know, it. I hope. Hopefully, uh, I'm gonna talk to to Doug, the, the general editor, Doug Armato, and and see about my my like gratis copies uh that i'll that i'll get and um and that'll be nice because because I, I have a few a few friends that i would love to to share that with and um i need to yeah. send you my copy of philosophy and non-philosophy and I need or, to or, or we just i just need i need to come down to, to austin and yeah that'd be see you and, and make sure i bring my, my book in so um where would where would you like to start today i i do feel like i've been promising you that we're going to actually like do some some text instead of yeah. just yeah. I, f- I feel like maybe it might be easier to do the definitions, perhaps, so that we don't go off on a tangent and never get to the the text itself. I'm open to your thoughts. I, yeah, I would say if you want to tackle that first question you have pulled up about negative theology, we can yeah. read a li- I, it. It'll jump ahead in the text. Right. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because uh, we don't have to stay there. But if you want to pull up your PDF of sure. philosophy and non-philosophy. And I believe it's like page 174, or you could control F henology, H-E-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Yeah. So this is in chapter five where he does get a little bit into, uh, into the mystic stuff. So, I mean, even the, even that first line can non-philosophy, which is the developed concept of the thought of the one be interpreted as a negative henology. This is impossible for two reasons. And, and, 
just for the listeners, right, the negative henology and negative theology are kind of shared in a, in a kind of a similar little, uh, little root. Henology is literally like the, the study of or discussion discourse of surrounding the one. That's, that's really all it means. So he goes on to say, and I'm quoting here, this is page 173. The first reason it's not a negative theology, a henology, is because it's simultaneously quote-unquote critical and positive instrument that which the non-precisely expresses and of which it bears witness is not in any way one of the forms of negation or nothingness that we find in philosophy. There's a question of the originary diet of the non-one, which is a term we could go into at some point. Um, it's, it, there's a definition for it in the dictionary, but we'll just leave that aside for a second. Um, but the non-one cannot, since it has its essence and its being nothing but imminent in the one, have the same effect and above all the same essence as nothingness in all its form, whether it be non-being, annihilation, the negative, negation, destruction, scission, etc., which suppose the element of being rather than of the one, a philosophical decision rather than a vision in one, and this is like it's in like uh, italics, and we'll just kind of move off here. The non-one in relation to the one and taken as complete concept is instead like a superstructure in relation to an infrastructure. This is why it and the negative no longer have the same real or phenomenal constitution at all. They are even strictly incomparable. Um, precisely because it is founded on the non-one rather than on non-being, on an experience of suspension, simultaneously milder than nothingness and more universal than it, since it suspends being itself, insofar as the latter still arises from a form of transcendence, non-philosophy cannot be called a negative genealogy. At most, it is, quote-unquote, suspenseful, a static suspension or reduction, the state of superstructure rather than navigation. And it's not all a negative philosophy because the non-here no longer derives from philosophy, is no longer dominated and legislated by it, but finds essence in the one alone, and is brought to bear on philosophy when the latter is manifested. It suspends philosophy in an undivided way, including all the ontological functions of the non here philosophy is no longer master over its destiny, or sorry, here, yeah, um, here philosophy is no longer master over its destiny, for it is no longer what acts upon itself, neither auto nor heterocritique, because the non-one emanates from the one alone and affects the philosophical in a quote-unquote dualitary way, i.e. in a way even more heteronymous than the other of deconstructions. Non-philosophy is a real process, a negative phenology would be an effective process. I'll, I'll pause there, I think we don't necessarily need to go too much more into it. I just want to make one gloss and then I, I want to sure. hear your, your reaction. One, one gloss. Is <laughs> I'm afraid I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to have one. I'm no, like, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I, I, that's, um, but that's a question that we got from a, from a few, uh, listeners. And I know that there is, uh, there I is mean, that, that question is, yeah. is somewhat tied to the one we discussed about, I mean, Laurel, you know, openly specifies that it's not, this is not a uh, Copernican type mm -hmm. oppositional that's merely a revolution. Right. There's a really nice niche in Laurel studies of bringing in dialogue with the, the Neoplatonists, with Plotinus, with Proclus, with Theoblicus, um, these, these other thinkers of, of the one. And I think that this is where the question of the one or the one real or just the real, you know, vision of one, et cetera, for Laura. Well, it has a kind of, a, it has a quasi mystical side insofar as we discussed in episode one, this question of, you know, finally describing the, you know, the indescribable without paradox, right? This, this question of 
So it has that quasi mystical side, but but I think Laurel wants to completely do the same kind of suspension of of philosophical decision for for mysticism. This is where he gets interesting in the in the nineties and early aughts with with his um, with his kind of investigation of theology of of um, Christo fiction, etc. So I would just say that the in the eighties. One of the things that he will consistently juxtapose and and differentiate is you know that which he calls real, you know, including the one and its foreclosure, et cetera, and that which uh, he talks about in terms of effectivity. So philosophy and philosophical decision is is in this realm of of effectivity, and it's and it's that it's that kind of qualification that it already implies its auto position. It's as I was saying last time, it's self bootstrapping, right? Um, so this is something. This is why he he kind of tackles this head on, although perhaps not at length. I think that's reserved for later books. But this this, but at least provisionally, he 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 wants to he wants to preclude that that philosophically traditionally mystical aspect to non philosophy. How much do you think having familiarity with the Greek conceptions of the one is going to fill in, like, how much does that enrich your understanding of, of La Ruelle, do you think? Or at least this concept, perhaps, of the one and so forth? Right, I, I do think like that that's... Have, if you have a reading, perhaps, or something like that, um, because m- maybe that's would help me. Well, I, uh, yeah, I know that uh, a good friend of mine, I've never met them in real life, but on um, you know, Twitter Mutual, they, they told me to look at Proclus's elements of theology. I haven't done that yet. Um, I, but I am familiar with, uh, the Aeneids, um, from, uh, Plotinus and, you know, it's, I think you I did would, mention Plotinus in the first yeah, discussion, at least I would, I wouldn't necessarily read the whole of it, but it's, but it's kind of fun to like, just, just, just kind of skim through and look at some of this discourse about the one and, and you can, you can see, from that discourse, if you relate it back to, you know, the way Plato uses the one as a transcendental, right? The one and the multiple, et cetera, in, in the, the dialectic of that, that, that he sets forth specifically either in Timaeus or whatever. I, I do think that that, that is helpful. It's, it's helpful to, in having that in mind, it's, it's helpful to realize the, the stakes in play for Larwell continuing to, to talk about the one in a way that is um, that, that completely takes it out of its philosophical tradition, and I think that's that that Laurel. I think for Laurel, that's a, it's like a major major state, and it's also potentially a ground for the greatest misunderstanding. Right. So yeah. Further off of this, I think the imp- the implication being, I guess one maybe this is a two pronged question. Is there a positive philosophical project that can be derived from non-philosophy or non-standard philosophy? And I guess the other side of that coin is, is there a political potential? And I think we mentioned, at least in the last episode, some discussion of, of a potential, I don't know, some type of an, maybe an, I call it ontological anarchist sort of position that Low Royal may be useful in, in, in developing from. And I'm curious too, like that might, I mean, he's written the non-Marxist book or introduction to non-Marxism. And we know that he's not, he's not a dialectician. I don't know. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I think that your first question about, you know, um, as I, as I tried to say last time, you know, um, 
and it's okay to, to, to reiterate some of these points. I mean, I, I think yeah. that, like, like a lot of thinkers like Zizek, like, uh, even Deleuze and these others, you know, there's, there's a sense in which each new Laurel essay or, or, or book in many ways, like takes, takes like the cards and reshuffles the deck and, and, and rolls the dice that, um, there's always, there's always these refrains. We, we, we can talk about that with, with really any author. Yeah. Um, but, but the question of, I mean, I do think that he says straight up, if you remember in the opening lines of the intro, right, that non-philosophy is, is, is proposing first and foremost, um, a, a sort of matrix, a sort of, you know, quote unquote program for, for radically new writings. Of, of philosophy and, and, and we just have to remember that you know non-philosophy isn't trying to beat philosophy at its own game right it's not trying to, to to go get inside philosophy and then settle the war because that's part of the it's part that 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 would you know that would fall uh, into philosophy's game it, yeah that would, exactly that would that would play into its it would, it would it's an easy trap yeah. right it's the definitely the sure it, and it's the same thing with with you know trying to beat hegel at his own right game yeah exactly or on his own ground that's precisely uh so, but, but non-philosophy is, you know, intended to, to potentially be in the last instance for philosophy and, and really, you know, above and beyond it's, it's meant to be for, for man and for, and against this exploitation of thought, as he, as he says, I think at the end of, of the intro, right? This, that's, that. so it, so it does, so in that sense, that links up to your second part about you know, whether it be non-Marxism, whether it be about, um, or as I've, I've yeah. talked about non, non-anarchism. That's right. my, new, that's my meme it, ideology that I'll be, uh, working on. Right. That's the, that's the, the Scherner, um, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. That can, that's and, my, that'll be the title of my book. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> and it would, it, again, that would, uh, perhaps generate, um, elicit the, that that resistance to that greatest how funny that the the irony too of you no know, it, it'd have to be intro to non-standard anarchism yeah, i love it <laughs> well, oh, it's good. obviously the tongue-in-cheek of standard right because that would imply some type of hierarchy perhaps or right well which well, is kind of I, amusing right i mean that, that that's that's a whole can of worms that, that <laughs> I'll, I'll let you open that uh yeah. that up and and dig into but you know just off the top of my head for, for a little bit that we read today. So at the end of the essay that, that, that opens up, uh, the dictionary on philosophy, he says, uh, and this is quoting Laura. Well, this is the last paragraph. Um, he says for the quote unquote political hierarchy of concepts, this dictionary substitutes a democratic equality of terms, a transcendental equality in regards to the real, rather than the leveling of concepts, which are nevertheless unequal. To introduce democracy into the dictionary itself is not another way of wanting to once again ground the social order, which is the horizon of certain encyclopedic projects. It is a contribution to the emergence of another order, quote-unquote, an order without mastery, which we shall call non-social and non-political, namely that of men as stranger subjects. What is the subject of a non-philosophical dictionary, and what are his or her words? If the subject of a dictionary with a philosophical essence is a mixed subject simultaneously as produced by philosophy and as determined by the chosen classificatory order, the subject of the non-philosophical dictionary is completely different, what we shall not call other person but stranger, the existing stranger subject. Decapitalized words or non-conceptual symbols are those that the stranger subject speaks, which is an idiom for him or her, 
a radically subjective language and thus universal, but not in the philosophical sense or for things in the world in the manner of quote-unquote universal languages, but in the non-philosophical sense. Universal for all philosophies or for the world in person. If such a dictionary must fulfill a function, it is as a non-encyclopedic <laughs> organ, an organ of the decapitalization of knowledge. And if it must proceed to a quote-unquote advancement of the sciences, it is to that of the discovery and invention of the stranger speaking against. It is that of the, it is to that, it advances to that of the discovery and invention of this stranger speaking against the doxological baggage of philosophy and of thought in general. There's a lot to unpack there, but but we talked about yeah. uh, this question of a democracy and thought, and 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 the the, the, the essay about the dictionary uh, and 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 the what he calls first terms, right? Because this is an important. I think this is important to discuss a little bit. He hasn't talked about this much in the past decade, if, if I recall, but definitely in the 80s and 90s, this notion of a first term would be a stand-in or a, an indication of what we get when we take, say, a philosophical concept and rehandle it according to the rules that non-philosophy proposes. So this is why first terms, he'll say, are decapitalized or depotentiated or non-conceptual symbols, right? So the one-in-one or man-in-person or any of these definitions in the, in the dictionary, they they indicate they indicate a first term and we will have to get into that maybe more because there is a definition for first term and it lays it all out and so we can we can do that at some point but i i think that the important thing to take away from this is this that, that first terms already indicate that suspension of, of hierarchy and conflict right and you know it, you know you, you could we could use your terminology for it and, and even why not? I mean, I think that there is a non-anarchism, so to speak, to uh, kind of regulate a non-anarchism to to first terms and the um, and and that that suspension of or that introduction of democracy into thought. I don't know. There might be some interesting things about how Laurel views chaos that could inform this a little bit, but I don't know if I want to get into that necessarily. Well, we could we could go over one of because it's related. That's related to. Cora, correct? Yeah, if you if you felt like it, or unless you wanted to, to tackle another another question, um, let's uh, we'll put a pin in that, and uh, we'll we can circle around to that. I want to make sure we stay <laughs> get some yeah, actual stuff yeah. addressed. Um, briefly, I wanted to mention pragmatics again because I thought upon going back and listening to the last episode, it was funny. I was like embarrassed. I left it in the episode, but I was embarrassed because you basically. You elaborate on what pragmatics is, and then I ask a question that shows I have no clue what I like. Totally missed what pragmatics were, which I thought was really funny. Right, <laughs> I thought this was interesting because, like, pragmatics was more so, I guess, the actual way that languages language change and evolves in a certain like sense, right? Yeah, like I an mean, actual practice of speaking. Right, right. I mean, it's 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 related to. You know, this this again comes down to Jamie, Jamie asked us a question, right? Related to pragmatics, too, or at you, least a comment about Laurel's pragmatics versus Watari's. Yes, yeah, I, I know that. I know that she's been reading through yeah, the machine unconscious and hasn't started with with non philosophy, but you know, she may have um, uh, have heard me me speaking a little bit about that. She had asked me some questions about 
competence and performance, which, you know, this, this goes back to Chomsky, the, right? Yeah, Chomsky, Chomsky has this, this, he has this, it's either an essay or it's a throwaway comment where he talks about the, uh, the wastebasket of pragmatics. And, and it's, it's, it's literally that the, that pragmatics in the traditional view of linguistics and the different disciplines, whether it be glossomatics or phonem, phonematics and et cetera, that, Pragmatics is kind of everything that doesn't fit into those divisions, into those uh, demarcations of linguistics. It just goes into pragmatics. Right? You don't know where to put it. It's like, man, that, that's just throw it, just throw it away. And I think that 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 Watery, this might be part of his contrarian nature, but that's why Watery wants to like. For him, he's he's kind of like Marx with Hegel, right? He's he's setting linguistics on its feet. And wanting to show that linguistics is actually a subdiscipline of pragmatics, and that pragmatics is is much much broader, and and and, and, it, and it and it has to do with the same way that he demarcates semiology as the study of you know the signified signified relation or the study of you know signifiance and interpretants. Whether you go to Saussure and Bart or you go to uh, Bombinist, however you want to cut it. So it's 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 literally like interested in logos, whereas semiotics would be a signifying a grammatical, you know, uh, talks about Bantu's little phrase and how that's important for Proust, yeah. or refrains in general, components of passage, all these other things that, that wouldn't traditionally fall under uh, linguistics proper or language proper. And yeah. so that's why I think for Guattari, part of the stakes of a machine unconscious is to is to show that pragmatics is is everywhere, and it's precisely too the way that, the way that Lewis thinks about, uh, like say Proust or the literary work, uh, not just as a work of art simply, but as a machine, and that it we have to think about it in terms of its use, in terms of its 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 in terms of how it functions and what it can function with and plug into. So I think that that for for that that does come back to what you were talking about with pragmatics is it is about a um, it is concerned with with use and so the traditional binary that Chomsky plays with is is competence and, and performance and given a base given a minimum competence a certain competence then there's a potential infinity of performances of languages that can ensue from that and I, I think the Guattari wants to show that binary to be much more flexible and not to hierarchize competence as, as some sort of yeah. I- ideal right. you know, stratification that determines performances yeah. in a, either in a molar molecular way or whatever, that that they are you know, rhizomatically intertwined and you can't really separate one from the other. Um, yeah. and, and that to do so is a kind of bad abstraction. Right? I always, I feel like I would, my notion of what, what I think of in terms of semiotics is more what Guattari would consider semiology. Interesting. Than semiotics. Because you said semiotics is the A-signifying. For, for Guattari, and he, and he admits that it's his own. It's his own, right? Okay. It's his own so personal proposition. Okay. Yeah, he, he, gotcha. he, he says it's, it's just as arbitrary as... Okay, I thought so. Uh, but I do think that, he, that, that if you look at that... Distinction he makes between semiology and semiotics. This is why I think Guattari becomes. This is why he's very interested in Purse and and Purse Purse's wild way of thinking about signs, and that um, Purse is, is one to classify signs in a in a way that's very useful for 
for for understanding glossary, you know, with with the, with the notion of icon and index, etc. Which I won't necessarily go into here, but but, right. it, but, it, but it is important for. I mean, say, we've discussed that on some of yeah. the machinic uh, the Quotario right. Brothers episodes. Right, and it's just that just to plug that for people <laughs> that that that, that, a, that a simple opposition would be you know semiology. I always just think of like Saussure and Barth, yeah, their way of talking about language, right? Which is, um, I think is what I right, yeah, that's what I think of off offhand. So with with non philosophy, this question of a of a science of philosophy based on axioms, based on rules with respect to the one, and and a kind of and a. Uh, you know, a regulated procedure for treating, handling philosophy as material, as occasion, as symptom to be reworked and rehandled. Um, I think that that, you know, we kind of said last time it's, it's this conjunction of art, uh, science analysis, and it's creating this kind of infernal non-philosophical machine and it obviously involves philosophy as but 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 as material right not as as the as datum as material not as the uh the coordinating power so to speak right so that's where i think for laura well he's thinking of pragmatics in, in that sense and he's thinking of you know a given up given a particular say non-philosophical competence or you know there are you know, a virtual infinity of of variations of of you know, non philosophical performances, right? So, um, and 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 it and it and this is, I think, where pragmatics links up to the politics stuff that we talked about with the dictionary, where it is about generating this equality that is also um, respectful of the identities of, of the of the philosophical materials and doesn't just mix them up. Uh, and, and, and make a kind of muddy brown, right, on a, on a palette, like mixing all the, the colors. It, it, um, it tries to respect that the, the sense of identities of, of these philosophical statements. And, and potentially, I think we could get more into this to talk about Graham's question about fractals. I, I, I don't want to get into that today, but the, uh, but we could definitely, we should definitely keep that on the back burner and, and, um, and talk a little bit about, about, non-aesthetics and the fractal islands and these other things. That bit about philosophy as symptom sounds really interesting, but I guess that's yeah. part and parcel of him. I mean, he is sort of looking at philosophy and psychoanalysis together. Yes. Because we're getting a little bit, and we'll dive into this a bit, but just to set the stage, we're going to have like a contrast between Plato's, or I guess people, I guess early Greek thought in terms of the one and Lacan's notion mm -hmm. of the real those two different approaches, but I don't know. Philosophy as symptom sounds like a, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. On you know, face, if nothing else, it's, it's, he, he, he also uses the term resistance, right? That this is where that, that notion of philosophy or to be more technical, philosophical decision, um, auto position, et cetera, already betrays a certain resistance, we could call it a repression. I mean, we could, we could use that terminology if we wanted to, but it is, it is a kind of repression of whether it be the name of the real or, or this, this, you know, unilateral foreclosure and philosophy doesn't recognize it or doesn't want to recognize it or in its spontaneous exercise all already, um, shows to repress that, that, re that reality, so to speak. And, 
And so I think that that's why philosophy has material occasion symptom. You know, it's, there is, it's precisely the symptom that is the kind of Archimedean lever to, to, and also the rich, the richness of the material of the philosophical material. It, uh, so it's, you know, those, those terms are kind of interchangeable, but they're just different. There's, there's different facets of, of that, you know, that non-philosophy is when it, when it does, what it does is, you know, not just theoretical, not just, you know, quasi-scientific, not just artistic. It, it also has an, you know, an analytical moment by bringing to the foreground these, these mechanisms or these presuppositions, et cetera, that philosophy, you know, is, is, is like consubstantial with or, you know, whatever. Something we discussed, I think, maybe in the first episode, but I think is, I don't know, this concept is, kind of novel to me in like an interesting way because of the sort of overlap I see in s- as far as like applying this sort of notion of dead labor to philosophy as a as an institution perhaps would be the better way to maybe the way to frame it um and so the dead because I was talking about I think and I didn't do the greatest job I think in episode one about trying to say how describe or explain how philosophy is is spooked or haunted in that hauntological way by the dead labor of, in one sense, like the dead labor of the philosophers that have, have existed heretofore and have, have done philosophy as we know it, as practiced. Right. Right. And what I think is sort of interesting in that sense, and we talked last episode, I was talking about how, you know, once Marx sort of does Marx's political economy, in some sense, that's foreclosing on the opportunity for for that same ground to be tr- to be trod in a certain sense, right? Like in one way, once Marx does that, you can't really redo that again. I mean, you kind you can though. <laughs> that's the weird nature of it because, and I was thinking about this. I've said this on like an episode before, and just thinking about this, like the metaphor is from a creative standpoint, and I think through poetry. So in what is it like free free verse and blank verse? I forget which is which, but right. are there are essentially no rules in terms of meter, rhyme scheme, etc. That's blank yeah, free, verse, correct? Well, yeah, and free verse is. I mean, it's, it, the two terms are, are related, right? I yeah. I don't know if I could uh, off the top of my head say that there. I wouldn't know if there there is a difference. I'm sure that some some of our listeners would would know. I just you know I I, I remember. One of my poetry teachers just, and I'll let you finish your thought, just saying that um, free verse. They're free from rhyme scheme, but blank verse does not have a consistent meter. Does have a consistent meter. Interesting. Gotcha. Gotcha. So free okay. verse is both non-rhyme, doesn't require rhyming, and okay. has no meter. My idea here is, in one sense, the fact that you don't have to adhere to rhyme scheme or meter opens up like a certain freedom, but... At the same time, sometimes those, the conventions of meter and, and rhyme and genre. Will, are, are, yeah, it can be creative as well. Sometimes the constraint, the constraining force is the creative force. I totally believe with that. I, 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 but not, I mean, you know, it's not, it could be either or there's, it's indeterminate as far as yeah. what's going to be what. So 
I look at philosophy somewhat in the same way because in some sense, we are sort of not free to do philosophy because we're the dead labor of philosophy haunts us. The institution of philosophy, which is obviously not a formal institution necessarily, I guess you could somewhat say through academia, perhaps there is like a formal institution of what philosophy is that constrains thought. But at the same time, like in as far as dialectically, I just think about my own what spurs creativity for me sometimes is often to encounter an idea when i encounter that idea the line of flight from that idea could be there's infinite possibilities it's sort of that fractal notion that we've mentioned too right so i i don't know i i think that's just such a weird because i think the commonly you always think common sense view is restriction means non-freedom or lack of freedom right but that can be that lack of freedom can generate a positive creativity. But also the removal of constraint can also create that as well. So yes, it's, interesting. It, it's like a dependent depends upon it's contingent in a sense. I think this is, this is great. I, I really like what you said about poetry and this, my, one of my teachers said uh, to me that, you know, a great, it, it was, it, I think it was kind of throwaway and semi-sarcastic, but there was a kernel of truth in a way. He's like, you know, like great poets, you know, don't, don't start with free verse. They get to it after, you know, mastering all the and sort of like film too which i would try just to think about that but go ahead yeah i mean and i think this it's 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 the same for traditionally it's this it's kind of the same for philosophy too even if each thinker builds off of another and 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 sometimes stakes out it their own manner of exposition to such an extent that they create a style even if it resonates with i mean if one were to do a dialogue today it's hard not to think about the Initiator of the genre, Plato, etc. But you know, and 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 I think that this bears again on kind of what Nietzsche thought about the aphorism, and I think that that too is Joe and I used to kind of argue about this, and and in a, in a, in a nice way where it's like it's like oh man, I, I don't know Twitter, you know, even with the the doubled character count of what is it? Is it two forty two eighty? Two eighty. So it's two eighty, and it's like. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, you just can't really do philosophy or whatever. You can't really express a thought in 280 because there's too, there's not enough. And it's, I agree with that it, it, for a certain right. mode of exposition. For dialogue, I think. Yes. yes. It's a bad, it's a bad f- format for right. dialogue. But I like that, like that constraint, knowing that like, ah, like, especially when you get to like that, it, that circle turning yellow. It's like, <laughs> you know, you have 20 characters. I never left. get there. I never oh, get there. Well, the, which I think is funny, just in general. Oh, g- given yeah, given your general way of of, exactly. of doing it, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes all one is it to like share a screenshot of a like, right. like the the dictionary, right? And and I'll also want to say yeah, maybe a little bit in the t- in the tweet to to be like oh, here's a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah. Hey, this is why it's cool. And then I also right. want to give the citation, <laughs> right? And so it's like, and and that all that's already factored in. I mean, when I was doing, you know, whenever I'm rereading. Like I was rereading the scene on Dawn and trying to post little snippets, snippets of it that I'd want to like capture a, a full sentence um, or even maybe two or three to get that complete thought. And many, many times I'm like, oh shit, I went a hundred characters over. Okay. That's, <laughs> you know, that sucks. And, um, but yeah, so that, I think that you're right about, about this question of dead labor. Uh, I don't know if whenever we were talking about Proust, either with, you know, Craig and, and Will or, or with uh, DC and, and Alfonso, I'm trying to remember back. I, I may have told you a little bit about um, Harold Bloom and the anxiety of influence. Did we talk about that a little bit? 
or, or it vaguely, to, I vaguely, I just remember Bloom. Yeah, just the whole notion that like the second generation of the romantic poets, uh, Keats and oh Shelby, right, right, yeah, had yeah. this had this kind of they had the great shadows of Coleridge and um, yeah, okay, uh, it, they had Coleridge and Wordsworth as these great you know monumental um, thinkers and defining this this new um, so to speak revolutionary. Um, manner of, of expression in their own ways you know that that's this burden of having to like confront the, the father and compete with him etc i mean i think he uses the edible framework as a foil and already explodes it at a certain point but he he definitely comes with this notion that like oh you know everything's already been said everything's already been thought and we, you know there's there's no creation you know nothing new under the sun right if we want to get all like enthusiastical about it and mm-hmm. and so yeah there is this I mean, he points to it. I think in the I think in the introduction he says like you know there the history of philosophy itself it shows that it that its stock is rare. Right? We may even want to look at that. Do you want to look at that? Um, sure. Would you mind? I think that's in the intro. Let's just maybe CF control F rare or stock. Yeah, once there we go. Once uh... okay. So what page is this? Just for the reader. This will be page one hundred four. Just me. Yeah, page 104. I'm sorry, I thought that... Well, I think it says here the, there's a rarity of decision. It stems from unity. All philosophy is the manifold of the dyad. Share the unique surprise of unity, which is in itself indivisible. Is this Hence this pitiless war they wage against one another, these meticulous planned strategies, these triumphant affirmations, and for the subless of them, these claims of moderation and sobriety. Philosophy's foreclosure upon itself, and into its own warmongering or unitary multiplicity forces it to be reckoned with as supposed inexhaustible, but basically rare stock. This does resonate with some of the things we already talked about, though, the, the question of, of, of this warfare. Will you look up Control-F rare? Just try that. There's one. <laughs> so this is under suspension okay. of unitary. That's, the that's rarity of philosophical decisions is both a matter of fact and principle. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so this gets back to that formal constraint, I think. Just to, we, we won't worry about that here, but this is part of the formal constraint you brought up and the fact that, you know, it's, for him, it's deeper than any generic distinction, like the difference between either the essay or the, or the dialogue or whatever. It's, um, it's more of, it gets back to the, the term about, um, he'll call it the Heraclitian principle. And this is that, that, that phrasing that you always come back to of unity of contrary. We could we could control F um, maybe Heraclitian or he calls it the Heraclitian paradigm, I believe. Postulate. There we go. But that's still not okay. Maybe I'm going at it. Maybe just uh you want to just look up unity of contraries? There there it is. Well that's one of them. This is at least in in, in our reading. <laughs> we've, we've talked a little about this, but this is on page six. And he says, this bottom of page six, he says, how do we explain this continuously revolutionary yet ultimately conservative situation, which is the enemy of true mutations? In fact, the structural rule of philosophical decision, which is also a transcendental rule because it, because it is except, itself affected by affecting what it organizes and distributes, is unity of contraries, the circular coextension with some shifting here and there of the one in the dyad. I, I won't read more, but that's. But it also has that phrasing of the, the other who is not later on, which is kind of a reference to Jean-Luc Marion and, and Levinas, these other influential French 
which on its surface al- alone sounds like yeah, that's the kind of that makes my ears perk up when I hear a phrase like that for sure. So he wants to say that you know, and this gets to the the three groups that he gives, right? He does on the one hand, there's the history of philosophy. Well, it, we could look this up to the arcs, the different gaps, the different like discrepancies, or really, it's kind of discrepant, disparate trajectories that philosophical decision takes. That would be really cool to look at if we want to jump to if we want to explain this notion of unity of contraries. So um, I think Herstalas, you know, that might be, he, he, I don't think he says his name too many times, eight times. That's actually what I thought. And this is exactly it. This is perfect. So this is what, page 20? Yes, page 20. I know that this may have been one of your clips, or maybe this is something we DM'd about a little bit. Um, he says, practice in this way, philosophy remains the object of a repetition, ultimately an approximation with its difference. Contemporary thought practices it, for example, Wittgenstein must also be added here through a triple repetition of a widening gap. This is why I was kind of talking about a dis- discrepant dis- uh, trajectories, right? We can think of a kind of, or maybe even like lines plotted on a Cartesian uh, axis. There, there are these different, there are these three different uh, waves, if you want to say. Um, the first wave, the slightest wave, the slightest gap, the poorest, but the most assured repetition is the history of philosophy. Makes sense, right? That ties back to this um, conservative yet revolutionary alphabon back and forth. The most intense gap, the most fruitful repetition is its interpretation as an imminent operation or autoproductive machine. Each of them delays. And I think that uh, Nietzsche contra Heidegger is really important here for, for this thought and the following one, which Laurel finished saying, the most distant and heterogeneous gap, the most menacing and hesitant repetition is deconstruction. Heidegger than Derrida. And he'll say in relation to Derrida and Levinas and, you know, uh, to anticipate a bit this notion of the Judaic turn, you know, through linguistics and psychoanalysis and their interaction with philosophy, uh, specifically in the 20th century, is the notion that Derrida, through deconstruction, is able to present like the most, and Levinas too in his own way, are able to like distend and, and put the most pressure on bending and breaking the philosophical decision. And in fact, they'll say that even if there are senses in which they, they do this, even when it's, it's, it's merely broken and, and left to an even more irreducible kind of antinomy and, and, and aporia. And it's precisely not a question of merely breaking it, right? It's a question of, of lifting it from its effectivity. Anyway, I just thought that that juxtaposition, that, that three, the, the three paths, right? The weakest one being the history of philosophy, which is, I think, sums up and goes back to your question about dead labor and even the work on the archive, et cetera. And then obviously Nietzsche Deleuze, Heidegger Derrida. There's just, there's just kind of interesting little mapping going on. Yeah. It might be interesting to articulate that doubling or that sort of, because that's evidence of that bouncing the ball off of to some, right? Is, is that sort of what he's getting at saying like, Deleuze is picking up on Nietzsche, Derrida upon Heidegger, et cetera. Yeah, I do think it's part of it, right? That, that, um, in the context of like almost how Deleuze and maybe how Deleuze uh, would say difference in repetition as that kind of approach to eternal return, Mm -hmm. eternal return, but different. (laughs) Right. right. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting that. Because then the, through through Derrida, yeah. Derrida contra Heidegger would be, so Heidegger is saying that history of philosophy has ignored being until until me, right? There's this fundamentally assumed 
thing in philosophy that ignores right. being. I always ignored the question of being, or has forgotten the question of being. Yeah. And then Derrida is saying, Derrida is also pointing to a weakness in the philosophical tradition of philogocentrism. So that's their shared sort of ground, or like that's maybe what, that's how Heidegger sort of propels Derrida on his line of flight. Yeah, and what I like about this is there's a there's a fourfold here to use a Heideggerian term. There's this quadripartition you have in the seventies, right? His hit with his second book, he writes a book on textual machines, where he to get back to what kind of I said last time, he's 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 interested in in slamming the thought particles or Deleuze thought and Derrida thought together. It really serializing them is what he says. Yeah. He's, he says he's interested in the uh, Deleuze Derrida series. <laughs> the purpose to like. <laughs> spells them, and nice. um, and so I think that you ha- that if you start with the Louis Derrida as two poles, and then with I don't know if it's his third or fourth book. Oh, okay, I mean, so this are these the Cartesian coordinates you were kind of sort of, but uh, also the like plotting out the the kind of square this 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 fourfold. You know, you have Nietzsche contra like the Heidegger political compass. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. You Name have right. Nietzsche contra Heidegger. So there's a way in which he sees by this point. As you probably already saw, and why he was interested in, in these four figures very early on, you see you see that you have Nietzsche, Deleuze, Heidegger, Derrida, and they they those assembling them in that way, um, yoking them together. Sometimes he'll later, sometimes or elsewhere, he'll be like Nietzsche, Spinoza, Deleuze, or Nietzsche, Lucretius, Deleuze. He can he kind of chains up, you know, the way that Deleuze himself, you know, tries to him back to certain voices, both minor and major, and and, and align them in, in ways that that make make them communicate in a in a you know in a, in a violent way, right? Because it is about violence and thought. The, those four together, that, that juxtaposition of Nietzsche, Deleuze, Heidegger, Derrida, hitting them off like in a tag team match is you know it's this question, right? There's there's this question of there is a radical nature of sort of taking philosophy to to its to its limit you know and i see i think that Deleuze wants to do that with critiquing the image of thought with transcendental empiricism but also Nietzsche with like sounding out hollow idols and even proposing a kind of psychology for philosophy right the critiquing its its idleness critiquing its nihilism or its decadence you know working with that that's that that's a good way to talk about philosophy as something right is Nietzsche wanting us to Wanting us to um, to test out idle thoughts, the twilight of the idols, right? Idle in both senses. And, and I think Derrida proposes deconstruction, and this is why he got seized upon by English departments and literature departments. You know, he, even if his philosophy isn't reduced to this, he proposes mechanisms and he proposes ways in which we can disrupt these binaries that traditionally already animate culture and thought and etc. And we can reverse them, we can invert them, we can displace them in, in various ways. And I think for Laura Well, he wants to take that to uh, to a higher power and show how that can be generalized, that deconstruction can be generalized for approaching philosophy in this in this mutated quasi-scientific way, right? You mentioned briefly in that the Judaic turn. I'm curious what the what that means. What is the Judaic turn? Yeah, so, um. And that's restricted to, that's in the context of philosophy, right? Judaic turn in philosophy? Does, yes, uh, yes, specifically. So you could say philosophy, you might be able to generalize it to the history of thought, 
I don't know. I don't want to get into Foucauldian definitions. Does he say Judaic turn in philosophy and non-philosophy? Is that something we could search for? There's Judaic several times, but not Judaic turn specifically. Uh, more than several. Uh, several times ten. Yeah, that's just curious. Greek logos with the Judaic other. Spinoza with Hume, Nietzsche with Husserl. He calls them the, the Nietzsche, the Nietzschean varieties. I think he's thinking about Deleuze, but also Derrida, right? In any case, yeah, the Judaic term is he has a, he has a, an essay on non-analysis or generalized analysis. And he wants to say that the Judaic term and thinking specifically with philosophy responding to it is um, both, both Heidegger and Wittgenstein. Um, in their own ways, right? Radically different ways. So that's why I always kind of think of the Jake term as, on the one hand, part it's 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 a larger part of the linguistic term in philosophy that sometimes gets talked about or used to in the sixties and seventies. You know, which Saussure, uh, Bonveniste, Yamslev to Derrida specifically with deconstruction, all of that. Bart, right? So, uh, um. Semiology writ large, right, and, and, and its impact on philosophy. But then there's there's analysis, right? There's psychoanalysis specifically. So philosophy dealing with, or really, the, the, you could you could even say that Freud Freud in his, in his later years he writes that essay on the unconscious, and he he specifically in the very opening is challenging philosophers, challenging their conception of privileging consciousness as the seat of thinking, as the seat of reason and understanding, etc. And for him, this is, uh, this is why it's vitally important to consider the unconscious. And we do have some, in the history of philosophy, we do have some thinkers who propose it, right, like, like Schelling. Um, but obviously Freud delineates what the unconscious conceptually uh, would mean. And so it is a challenge to philosophy to, to consider the fact that this privilege of consciousness as, as the seat of thinking is... Um, not telling the whole story, and, and and so we miss out by failing to grasp the reality of the of the unconscious. Later in chapter six, he will do a deep dive into deconstruction and of Derrida Levinas. So I think that that's part of the Judaic turn philosophy as well. You know, in, in a secondary wave, if you want, that Derrida and Levinas challenge philosophy too. Uh, Derrida, as we've already spoken with deconstruction and um, and the, the sort of Dismantling um, or proposed reversibility, convertibility of, of the binaries in, in, in the history of metaphysics. But with, with Levinas, it's also that for him, ethics precedes ontology and precisely it founds it if we follow his line of thought. And therefore, it's a challenge to philosophy to begin with ethics and not to get there at the end through some ontological investigation. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if maybe that's, and that's, you said that's Levinas, correct? Yeah. So that's specifically to tally infinity, but also ethics and infinity. He lays out some oh. of those. That's, that's, that's the best text to get into Levinas, in my opinion. Um, so like that kind of follows, I think we had mentioned before, like that, uh, someone had said that Levinas has an anarchism about him. And maybe it's in that um, sense that like this, because anarchism is often like it's prefigured at politics because it's not at the end of this process we're going to reach anarchism. It's no, you do anarchism now. <laughs> like you start with anarchism. You don't, it's not a, there's no teleological. But there's yeah, no I like telos that. there. I like, I like that. You and simply, you start starting with the right answer to begin with rather than, so I don't know. <laughs> this, uh, what we're looking at from the dictionary. This is from the dictionary. 
I think this is good too to sum this up. This is actually a. Uh, this is under. This would probably be where we'd pick up in terms of, or, and start as far as definitions go. It's, would be real parentheses one in one comma vision and one also in parentheses. Yeah, this could be a good way to to, to wrap up the, the episode. Um, you know, just to do some of these. So, if you notice how the definitions are laid out, you have the first in italics. That's like the kind of definition proper. Yeah. You know, um, and then the second part is a is is deepening, enriching the the first term that yeah the, the notion with the uh, the history philosophy, and then the third term is is more like how it would be talked about in uh, from from a non philosophical point of view. So this is great. So real one in one vision in one. I'll, if you don't mind, I'll read this. If you want to read the next part, we can sure. just kind of go. Um, so this is a definition from the. Dictionary of Non-Philosophy, which was published at the, in, on the same day, on the same date, with uh, as Philosophy and Non-Philosophy. I think I mentioned that to you, right? Um, they came out together, and they have they have the fractal patterns. They both have the same kind of cover, but different colors. It's it's pretty cool. So, real one-on-one vision of one instance defined by its radical eminence under all possible conditions of thought, thus defined by its being given of self, being self-given. If you want to read it like that. Uh, otherwise called vision in one or one in one, and defined by its being foreclosed to thought. The real is neither capable of being known or even thought, quote-unquote, but can be described in axioms. Instead, it determines in the last instance thought as non-philosophical. But that's, that's like the definition proper, right? And we've, we've hit on some of this stuff. About what What does this clarify for me, though, again, foreclosed to thought, for foreclosure to thought? Right. So, um, he'll take the notion of foreclosure from Lacan, which, you know, I, I'll just, I don't want to go down that road, but, <laughs> but it's very interesting if you want to do some, you know, uh, extra research. I just, I would like to say that this notion of foreclosure to thought is, is I think one of, this is one of the stakes of this notion of radical eminence, this notion of, of the one, in its radical eminence, not being conflated with its descriptions, not being constituted by those descriptions. So it, it does, it does, what's at stake then in foreclosure is the elimination of philosophical circularity, this kind of elimination of vicious circles in philosophical autosufficiency, etc., and its own reflexivity, its own turning back towards itself in this circle, right? So to use Plotinus, right, if we think of the one phenomenologically, ontologically emanating from itself and turning back and splitting off in that tension and that, and that torsion and that twisting to understand the dialectic of being, how being and nothing has come to, to physically create this world, then the one has to be said also or thought also as one in one, one without being. Right? So it never enters into this dialectic of phenomenalization, right? It is radically non-phenomenal if you want to think of it that in that sense and that's precisely why it can be thought of in this negative theology way or this this, this henology way this negative phenology way which is to say ontologically right which is to say yoked with being with language co-determined by it in a circular way it's precisely that radical eminence therefore as insofar as we understand thought is being turned from the one right it's unilateral it goes in one direction it doesn't it's not reciprocal Right, that the thinking doesn't reciprocate. The one doesn't reciprocate with thinking because it's indifferent. It's like radically indifferent to thinking. It's radically static, 
um, and doesn't emanate from itself in this notion of distance or spatiality, etc. And yet it forces thought due to that. It is thought power, right, in a Marxian sense, due to, due to that, that radical unilaterality, that radical foreclosure. So thinking doesn't effectively do anything to the one in, quote unquote, thinking the one axiomatically. Right, it's precisely the the axioms. He won't use that language in philosophy and non-philosophy, but very quickly in the nineties, he'll start talking in terms of described um, by use of axioms or described in axioms. And I think that that looks forward to the ten possible matrices of descriptions because they would, in that sense, events they would kind of evoke that notion of an of an axiomatic description that doesn't constitute what it describes, that isn't conflated with the indifferent real or the indifferent one. That's a tough concept to to wrap my head around, not gonna lie. Well, I guess like you- just to like contrast <clears throat> that, because I did add a little bit of like this is like kind of a boilerplate standard philosophy of dictionary, just like to bring up because this is somewhat drawing from Lacan as well and as far as the yes. notion of the real itself is concerned, right? Yes, very much so. So Lacanian real and intrinsically elusive, intrinsically elusive, resisting by nature capture in, a, in meaningful formulations of concatenations of imaginary slash symbolic signs. It is, as Lacan stresses again and again, an impossibility vis-a-vis reality. It becomes both a transcendence, troubling and thwarting imaginary symbolic reality, and its language from without as well as an imminence perturbing and subverting reality slash language from within. It comes from being associated with libidinal negativities such as abjayah, abjaypatiya, jouissance, and sexual difference, and material me- or material meaningless, both linguistic and non-linguistic, contingent traumatic events, unbearable bodily intensities, anxiety, and death. This is great. This is great to, to cover that because you're right to say that Larwell inherits a lot of this from Lacan. I mean, even Deleuze, who I didn't make a note of like a sort of, again, boilerplate, Deleuzean real or Deleuze-Gortarian real, which would be the, the possible as somehow, or when we think of the possible as somehow pre-existing the real we think of the real, then we add to it the negation of its existence, and then we project the image of the possible onto the past. We then yes. reverse the procedure and think of the real as something more than possible. That is, as the possible with existence added to it. We then say that the possible has been realized in the real. By contrast, though, Deleuze will reject the notion of the possible in favor of that of the virtual. Rather than awaiting realization, the virtual is fully real. What happens in Genesis is that the virtual is actualized. See, yeah, this is, this is which great. sounds more like what La Ruella is saying to an extent. Is yeah, more I mean, so with what Deleuze envisions as the real. Yes, yeah, so that's that's great because I think I think it's just the fact that you have to we have to think Lacan and, and Deleuze together here without mixing them together. Right? We have yeah. to take we have to take some some of these elements. So we start with Deleuze. As you said, the virtual is fully real by itself, right? Does it, and, and so the possible is, is in, in the virtual are not synonymous. They are distinct. They're highly distinct. Um, the possible would be more to use, to go back to what, what I, what, what we talked about earlier with Laura Well, the possible would be linked more with, uh, effectivity, right? And so the real, um, and effectivity in a traditional sense would be opposed, kind of like the possible and the real are opposed for, as, as to those shows. But with, but the virtual and the actual are both fully real, right? In, in, in the, in the Delizian, 
uh, especially with his meaning on Spinoza and the, and the Stoics, et cetera. You know, he elaborates this in his own way. I think that for Laura Well, that's when we have to, we have to take some of that and realize that the real, as he conceives it, then shows also this lineage from Lacan and it being the impossible. So it, the real would not be in Laura sense, in the sense of the one, uh, be concerned with, would not concern virtual and actual together. Though, though that, those pairings would, would not work for, for the one is foreclosed, et cetera, right? It's, um, there is no reciprocation between the, uh, the world, what he calls philosophy, or we'll call it, we'll call philosophy, uh, world thought. There's no reciprocation. There's no co-determination, et cetera, right? That, so, so that's where Lacan's notion of the real becomes very helpful, right? Of thinking of foreclosure of, of language not constituting or co-constituting the, the kernel of the real. Even if, you know, in Lacan's dialectic, the impossible real is caught up with our entry into, um, the symbolic, into yeah. symbolic, et cetera, right? I mean, okay. you know, into simplification. This is where the axiomatic importance comes in for Laura Well, because if we're going to use language to describe the real and we're not going to, we're going to bracket the, we're going to bracket and, and unilateralize the linguistic content because uh, just, just as an aside, I think of like the meme, like, you know, you can see Laura well as the, we should be able to talk about the real. <laughs> and the guy pops up and he's like, ah, but you're using, but you're using language to talk about uh, the real. So it's, it's a, <laughs> that's so good. You know, it's, it's, it's very, it's very, um, this is that's why, perfect. this is why even, I love that. <laughs> why the question of, yeah, the question of like a philosophical appearance of non philosophy, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we should, we should, that was my question you. too. Yeah. Was like, how the, f- how am I supposed to use axiomatic descriptions of something that refuses to be that for is foreclosed to thought? Um, yeah. So this is that's this quite is, challenging. Has an answer that, on its surface yet, right? He has. <laughs> he hasn't in our in our broaching the introduction in chapter one. He hasn't yet announced how he's going to do that. He's announced that he will. Okay. He's, Spoiler he's, alert. Then. <laughs> yeah, he's told us he's going to, but at this point, yeah, it's not. It's not clear. Right. What okay. what constitutes what goes into the possibility of the matrices of, of axioms, right? He, he may give some, some indications in in uh, some of those descriptions. Was there one in particular that you really liked at the 10 that he proposes? Looking at page 38, the third possible matrices of descriptions of the one, right? Yeah, descriptions of the one's essence, right? It's, gotcha. Yeah. The one is an embrace supposed by every unity with itself, eternal embraced with neither past nor future, neither origin nor destination, and which has nothing, no manifold to embrace. The one has always already overcome separation when the latter manifests itself, or instead the one is what necessarily has had nothing to do with separation and that which overcomes separation. The one is jouissance of self where the enjoying has no object or no object besides itself. Enjoying which is transcendental or eminent rather than psychological and intentional. This is enjoying as radical of subjectivity. Here still, in the domain of the real, 
There is no, nor has there ever been, a distinction between a matter and form, a subjective and an objective. No articulation, but empiricism, of the radical, rather than a pre-given subject that would then be embraced. The embraced itself, prior to any external synthesis, constitutes the real kernel of the one's subjectivity, its only possible humanity. Rather than the embrace, the one is instead the already embraced, and it is not the supposed embrace of every synthesis grasp by transcendence. Yeah, it could maybe grasp there could be like seized. I have to look and see. Uh, but it, but, it, but I don't think it would be seized in the way the French translate seized the means of production. I think it's more like, uh, <laughs> I think it might literally be, French might literally be the, the, the literal etymological word for, for seizing, right? It's because grasping almost implies a, almost implies a, a thinking. Really, I think here it's, it, there's a difference between the embrace Right, and, and a kind of death grip or a kind of caught, being caught by or in transcendence, um, being, being caught in its language games and its, and its, uh, in its mechanisms, et cetera. Right. So I, I do think here. This is one where perhaps there's the sterner connection, specifically yeah. this bit here. The one is jouissance of self where the enjoying has no object or no object besides itself. That's very much so this sort of. Maybe creative nothing would be the sterner term to really. But I do think that that description gives you a little bit of that matrix. Almost gives you a, a, a monadic, a monadological like uh, face of the one and an aspect of it. We we can see the one from that perspective of the embrace, and it and it it does fuck with uh, some of the axiomatic stuff that we'll get into the the rules. Um, because it, 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 it kind of poetically articulates this notion of, of, of unilaterality, right? The, the one not, not being reversible with, with what it embraces, right? It is the embrace itself. There is no self proper, which is why the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the use in French, the, the word is soi, and, and that just implies a kind of reflexivity of oneself, itself, et cetera. So yeah. His, when he says jouissance bracket of unbracket soi, it's we're, we're meant to see that separation, but but we're also meant to read it as self jouissance, right? And this is one of the questions that I, I forget who asked it. It's a good question though, just more about how the parentheses work. Um, and really quickly, okay. I mean, well, I'll let you um, get back to it. Uh, just the the way of the parentheses that he uses specifically, he usually uh, parenthesizes the word of. That's not the only one, but it's meant to meant to prevent the the duplicity of the genitive because the word of in French and in English can imply a genitive of or a part of it of. Right, so it's it, it, so you can read it in two ways, where you can read it as the of. Is it, does it belong to it? Right. Is like, right. So if like, um, science of philosophy, is it philosophy science in the sense in which it's a science of taking philosophy as its you know, object or is it philosophy's science? Like where it, yeah. where philosophy okay. owns it, right. Where right. it belongs okay. to it. So it's a, whether, it, whether it's a part or, um, ontologically or whether it, it indicates a kind of, uh, kind of belonging to a kind of a property, right? If we want to use that. that yeah. Term. So, so that parenthetical of the of brackets the reversibility, right? And in French, you're meant to read the, 
if you yoke together two nouns, right, which is how you'd see it, if the parentheses is kind of like a an under erasure, right, in the Floridian sense, then you they, then you would see the right noun, the swa, or some other. He's got all kinds of stuff like world thought, science thought, etc. They will have where the right word in the yoke is read adjectively, right? Because that's instead of like except for like numerical adjectives and a couple of others, all adjectives like in Spanish, like most romantic languages, would come after the after the objects, right? After the yeah. noun. So you you read you would read right that the of would make you read right to to left instead of left to right as we are as we usually do in English. So that's why chuisance of self with of in brackets is um, self chuisance. Why empiricism of the radical right with the, with the of the bracketed that would be read as as radical empiricism right. So that's there's a playfulness going on that I think the French intuitively and just naturally see. Marwell's usage of the parentheses that we, um, this is why there's a footnote in, or it might be in the translator's instruction to, to this work that I kind of make clear what's going on with us having to see from right to left. And the last thing I would say in, in his book, which you can call it Qua Wong or As Wong, it's not translated yet, but it's really interesting and there's it's, it's a nice little collection of essays and interviews, etc. But he, he gets this question about what's, what's going on with the parentheses and he says that one of the things that I found indicative is that we also have to read the parentheses as though the right parentheses holding it in is, is kind of lifted and suspended. And so that indicates a suspension in eminence, as I say, right? The, that by kind of leaving the parenthetical, if we just, we, we need to just see the left parenthetical, the left bracket, thereby read it in this imminent way. So it's, just, it's it's another, I think, mechanism, another interesting tool, another yeah. syntactic, it's really a syntactical deformation yeah. um, that he'll, that he's doing here. But yeah, so this, I think, reminds me quite a bit of, and this is like, I'm actually, this is someone, some random person's kind of description, but I think this is actually pretty spot on Excellent. for for Sterner's notion of the creative nothing. So the self is a, there's no fixed nature, there's no essence, but it creates its own sort of identity or nature through its experience of the world, perhaps phenomenologically. The self is nothing and that cannot be captured or defined by any concept, since concepts and def- definitions are themselves fixed and unchanging, whereas the self is, is, it's imminent. There's an imminence. Right. Yeah. There's a becoming to, the self. So the self is a nothing and it can't, it can't be identified with any of its actual manifestations in maybe the quote unquote real or. Right. I think all of this, all of this resonates. Yeah. So in other words, whatever your role or your identity is, will never like you as a white man, etc. like those signifiers don't capture all of your, to- the totality of you. Right. There is always the excess the surplus of you that can't be very similar to that notion of the real for Lacan is that it simply defies it's the gap for Lacan, yeah. right? Uh, I, I, think I think very that, similar to, yeah, to Sterner. I would say there's a, that Laura has a Sterner moment early on in the philosophy and philosophy text. If you want to try to control F and maybe look at this, he says, who am I? Who am <laughs> like, I, I think of like God saying to Abraham, "Yeah, like, like, I am that the, I tell am." The, tell the, yeah. So who am I? Who am? And he says, "I'm neither this question nor this answer." Yada yada. Right. And and I think that that's. Oh yeah. But I do think that that this 
little bit that you, you brought up about Sterner. Uh, I think I think it should be a recurring engagement that that we, we that you mm-hmm. bring your your kind of Sterner background and and, and you know uh, give us some give us some material for Larwell. Yeah, I think this last bit might be interesting to round round it out a bit as far as so the the self is not a nothing in the sense that it's empty, but a creative nothing that only exists by appropriating and externalizing itself in objects which thus become its property, which is of course big for Sterner's like taking right. taking ownership of property. And I think that could be in the sense of property as your literal property, but also as property as a descriptive yes. thing too. Potentially. Yeah, I like this. And then you can, you take up identity as you see fit and then as your property, right? So you can say, I am this as needed. You take that as your property and then discard it at your whim, effectively. I think that's a good way to talk about the the possible matrices of description of the one's essence, right? That that they, like the one you read, the third in the series of 10, the, the one about the embrace that made you feel it had these sterner vibes. I do think that that's, that this matrix, this matrix can fit a, can be appropriate for a certain, again, a certain like monadic perspective on the one, right? And it, it, but insofar as obviously the one is indifferent to all of these. And so, you know, all of them are collapsible and, and discardable. Yeah. Um, and yet, which they, is cool because that's the, also that, Ability to take and discard as needed to. Exactly. You know, in the nineties, he, he's talking about this axiomatic description and, um, in the kind of around philosophy four, philosophy five, he starts to theorize what he calls the or axiom. And or axiom is, is a really cool notion. Obviously, it's a portmanteau. It's a, you know, it's a, uh, joint word of oracle and axiom. And, um, gosh, I could, let me just, I'll let you talk for a second, but let me let me see if if because uh, I know you were kind of asking a little bit about how this axiomatic stuff works. Yeah, just like <laughs> I don't know the whole notion of axiomatizing something that can't be described. But I think maybe that's actually sort of not directly, but it's implied in your the way that you illustrated that that meme of oh you you critique society yet you exist in society and that sort of linguistic way of like, Oh, you critique language, but you exist in language. So I think maybe that, that perhaps answers that question. I think. Yeah. We're kind of condemned to, to make use of language. And I think that for Lawwell, it's, we have to see this as a, as a kind of positive freedom. One of the fundamental dyads or fundamental unitary type of dualities that he says, uh, is the, the dyad of the real and and language, right? And um, he wants to cut short the circularity. Uh, he wants this is why a lot of times we bracket logos, bracket logi, right? So you know, as I said, ontoepistemotheo logi. Right? <laughs> this, this kind of cutting up this bracketing, um, yeah, and not to make them reversible. Uh, so he says. Um, this teleological uses of language in view of the essential real, this discursivity and this auto heteroreferentiality must now be broken in order to unleash the real from linguistic hallucinations. In this way, it allows language to flourish definitively for itself and in its solitude. This is what we call non philosophy. But I just think that, that no, this is where the axioms come in. This is where the or axioms come in because it's about 
it's not that we're condemned to use language to describe the one. It's that if we choose to describe the one, we have to use language. We, it's not just no. that we have, it's, no. well, it, we do have to use language <laughs> to a certain extent, at least in this, at least insofar as we're doing non-philosophy, obviously non-philosophy then can have effects outside of language. But insofar as we are formulating the rules or, uh, quote-unquote, doing non-philosophy and describing what those rules are, obviously, yes. I mean, we have to we'll talk about it as this, you know, as he gets more into math, he talks about it in terms of the, the non-conceptual symbols and first terms. So there is this way that there's an axiomatic usage of language that that circumscribes and suspends its uh, hidden philosophical kernels and whatever. There's another bit that I thought was somewhat one of the other axioms might be good to, like, wrap up because it also, like, since we're on that, this bit about Sterner, I'll pull it up. So this will be on page 39, I believe. Six matrices. The one is a nothing but singular identity rather than mixed or singular and universal. A singularity without conjoint universality, in parentheses, attribute attribute or aperiodic dyad. Aprioritic, yeah. Aprioritic dyad. Rather than an abstract moment of a totality, it is absolutely concrete and accomplished to the point that it is not even a part unless it exists before the whole, not a moment unless it exists before the process, nor a point in the set unless it exists before any aggregate. Whereas philosophy, philosophy, for example, commences in the couplings that substance, essence, and attribute, Spinoza in parentheses, produce couplings that are the ingredient of the real, but in the sense that its substance, essence, and attribute are simultaneously distinct and inseparable, a thought of the one intrinsically or of itself is limited to substance alone to its sufficient interiority. He goes on, right? He says, this would be a substance if one could still call it that. I think I left off. That's okay. That's, that's okay. But, I, but, it, but it captures, I think it captures some of that. I like the Spinoza nod. Like this question of simultaneously distinct and inseparable, I think that's the two-thirds principles that we talked about last time of, you know, the unity of contraries and uh, or the two contraries and then the unity itself as the third hierarchizing term, as the one that binds everything together as it separates it, right? So so that's why, you know, one-half principles are right. you have the one and then you have the dyad, like, and there's they're separated without separation, right? There's no act of separation. As you mentioned in the embrace quote the one is nothing but singular identity rather than mixed or singular and universally and universal a singularity without conjoint universality so that would be like like that that would be perhaps the i or creative nothing or the unique like those those three terms are all kind of like sterner terms that are all kind of gesturing in the same direction i think that would be like this singularity without a conjoint universality maybe clarify this this parenthetical about about the attribution or the a prioritic dyad like what right. is that i'm not super clear on so the the a priori it's the a priori yeah. dyad or the dyad of the a priori right so a good way to say this is there are two chief dyads that Laurel will use to kind of summarize if we consider Kant, for example where you have on the one hand, the empirical and the a priori, and that distinction being very important for Kant, right, to get the project started of the particular reason. Yeah. 
And I think that for LRL, then there's two. There's also, if we consider the one's foreclosure and its radical imminence, it's, as he says here, it's sufficient interiority. And we consider the one half die, uh, principles, right? That you have the one and then, and then you have to die it, you know, and there's no, there's no like dialectic to go on there. That's just unilaterality, right? That's, that's, that's the radical separation of the one. And so, the second dyad that he'll consider is is then the a priori and the transcendental real, right? And so that's where this question of language again comes in because, you know, obviously the transcendental real, you know, whether we relate it to the noumenon or the thing of the self, whatever, you know, in, in the history of philosophy terms or conceptual terms, you know, insofar it's radically eminent and uh, is foreclosed to language, to thought, yet gives, uh, yet produces thought in, in, in forcing thought to think, right? <laughs> Say it kind of in a losing way too. Then that a priori and transcendental real uh, distinction is the circumscription of language's effective, effective role in in its inability to co-determine the real, co-constitute it, etc. All the different ways he kind of lays it out. And in its descriptions, it's not you know in its mirror effect, it's not uh, in its representation, it's not constituting the real or any having any part with it. So that's why it has to be axiomatically circumscribed, and uh, and that a priori, even if we have to use language a priori in order to like express, you know, as a conceptual lever to to you know to express these descriptions, the one has nothing to do with these descriptions. Right? It has nothing to do. It would be like substance having nothing to do with the attributes. Right? This is why he says attribute or operator diet. So now we go from Kant to Spinoza, and of the two attributes we are aware of, thought and extension, right, and their interplay, their, their parallelity, and these other things, and what Deleuze will call expression, right, and this is the expression of the modes, right, they express the attribute, etc., and so, you know, this is where he makes that, this is where Deleuze himself will ask, sounds like Laura Wells' one is close to the one all of Spinoza. I think for Laura Wells, if the one is man, man and person, right, um, on the other side of transcendence in terms of radical eminence. And like Swatari, we can say that the one slash man, man and person, whatever, is non-totalizable in sense of multiplicity. <laughs> Except that we have to understand intensive here in a very circumscribed way too, because it's precisely the one cannot be totalized and therefore has nothing to do with the dialectic of the all Etc. Right. So the last thing, if you if you will, I like the two descriptions we went over. I think that 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 can uh, suffice. I have the oraxium, the oraxium definition. That might be a good way to like keep us thinking. So the definition of the oraxium, as he lays it out in non-standard philosophy, he says oraxium is the portmanteau word of axiom and oracle that says as a single conceptual particle, the superposition of the mathematical axiom and philosophical decision. The quote-unquote axioms of non-philosophy are those that quote-unquote announce generic science and the last instance, in particular, conjugate two types of decision. The one, mathematical, of the opening of a structured formal field, and the other, philosophical, of arbitrariness, albeit regulated, of undecidable decision. The or axiom is the said of radical eminence and is under-determined by radical eminence. Other nuances of the term, the sibylline, the enigmatic, the abyssal, the groundless, the delirious, belong to philofiction and must be transformed according to the same rules. Futurality in particular is what is announced or performed by or axioms. So we'd have to talk about futurality, which I, I won't do yet. I, I, you know, we can 
uh, some of this gets laid out in Future Christ, and so this, this whole notion of futurality is uh, the one's eminence, as you know, the superposition of the weight and the particle, kind of comes from the future, so to speak, uh, <laughs> in a way that has to be, again, kind of rigorously understood. But in any sense, I do think at this point, I would be happy if we, if we, unless you had a, a last thought. Do you have a last thought that you want to um, end on? No, no, I don't think so. Other than to just perhaps lay out kind of what our game plan should be for the next discussion, at least uh, broadly yes. speaking. Yeah, so I think I we was, come back and pick up the matrices we haven't covered. That's yeah, a pretty could, so that's a lot of groundwork to do there. I think I think we can yeah. do a couple more of those. We don't have to do maybe all of them, but a couple more, and okay. maybe maybe get deeper into chapter, chapter one. one. This will wrap up. Uh, let's see, part three of our La Royal series. Yeah, going, this is not philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you guys are listening, you know, support support Cooper, support Machine Unconscious Happy Hour. You know, uh, dollar a month, and you know, I, I, I I'm I'm sure that some of this stuff, like some of the definitions, etc., some of some D sides should be devoted to you know for patrons. So if you're interested, I'm sure that Coop and I can can think of ways to. To make it worth your worth your buck. Definitely enjoyed the hell out of it, man. Um, but this will be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry the signing off. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.